Morning. We're going to be heading back to Second Chronicles chapter 33. Uh, this will be the, the last um, message on this series. We've only been able to look at a few of the kings of Judah. A uh, whole lot more could be said about those kings and a whole lot could be said about the ones we didn't get to study. But hopefully this maybe um, created an appetite on your part to really go back to the Old Testament and spend time in those books that we tend to neglect because we think they tend to be dry or, or they may not have as much to benefit us they actually do. Um, so hopefully this, this series has, has done that for you as well as the Wednesday night series that is somewhat, you know, uh, complementary with what we've done here since you're spending time in, in, in books of the Bible that, that have reference to, to a number of these individuals that we have covered uh, these last few weeks. So today we started talking about Manasseh. Um, so we'll finish, we'll wrap up this particular discussion on, on this particular king, continue to uh, glean some uh, information that will be helpful, some principles that will help us in our own walk with the Lord and uh, in our own faith. We said this morning there was two, primary, primarily two points we wanted to make as we considered this king. First of all, we, we, we noticed that Manasseh was uh, indeed uh, the worst of these sinners, at least the ones that we have been discussing in this particular series. What he had done went beyond, went beyond any of the preceding or uh, kings that followed after him. Uh, and we started discussing um, some of the things that led to him becoming the individual that he became. And the first point that we looked at under that uh, main point was the fact that his sin was unusually bad because one, he had uh, sinned against or rebelled against the light that he had been given up to that point. He was the son of a godly man, of a godly kin, king, who had done a great deal of good to the nation of Judah. Um, in fact, many argue that King Hezekiah was perhaps the godliest king after David uh, in terms of the kings of, of, uh, uh, of Judah. Um, the second item that we want to note as we think of, of uh, Manasseh is his sin was quite brazen. Um, and by that I simply mean obviously we don't uh, in any way, shape or form say that, that any sin, sin is sin. All sin is bad. All sin is an offense to a holy and righteous God. And all unbelievers, whether they understand this or not, and this was true of us before we came to faith in Christ, all unbelievers are servants of sin. But not all are brazen sinners. Outwardly, many are decent law-abiding people. They have a sense of propriety and shame. 
they make sure that their sin remains within, and I use this in quotes, socially acceptable limits. Not that to God there's a socially acceptable limit. Again, sin is sin. It's an affront to a holy and righteous God. But we all live in this world and we understand what we mean when we say socially acceptable limits. In other words, people do what they do understanding certain limits so as to not exceed those limits and be considered brazen in what they do. So, just to be clear, for God there's no such thing, but for humans there certainly is. And we know what we mean when we, when we use that expression. A New Yorker cartoon showed two shaven, decent-looking, middle-aged men sitting in a jail cell. And in the caption, one says to the other, All along, I thought our level of corruption fell within community standards. That's what we mean when we are talking about socially acceptable limits. There are things that in society we can do and not be considered yeah, that bad. Well, that's a fallacy. We know that. But to be honest, we Christians engage in that kind of way of thinking sometimes, don't we? In rationalizing or justifying a certain thought or word or deed. Got to be careful about that. Well, Manasseh's corruption was certainly far exceeding any community standard. It certainly went beyond any socially acceptable limit. He had no sense of shame whatsoever. That's how brazen his sin was. In fact, if there was a motto attached to him, it would be, if you've got it, flaunt it. Um, it's almost as if he was trying to be outrageous. To see if he could shock people with a level or the degree of wickedness. So he rebelled against light, and he had light, and he sinned brazenly. There was no shame. There was no hiding it. There was no closet here. Thirdly, Manasseh led and influenced others into sin, which is something that we ought to think about because when we engage in behavior that is inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture and with who we are as we claim to be followers and disciples and, and, and children of the living God. Our sin is not our own. Our sin can influence or cause others to do the same. Because, to some extent, we all have some influence in circles we move in. Whether it's family, whether it's uh, relatives, whether it's work, whether it's neighborhood, whether it's school, we all carry some influence and our behavior and our actions 
could lead others to engage in the very same thing. And that was the case with him. Now you would have thought that, all, that, that, that with all the godly people in the land after Hezekiah's revival, they would all have opposed Manasseh and forced him from the throne. But here's the issue. Many people are followers. They're willing to go along with a king who's bold for the Lord. But when things change, many will click, clearly turn aside and quickly turn aside to follow the king who is brazen to do evil. And we need to be very careful about that in today's environment where everything is politically correct. We need to be clear about what it is that we believe and what we stand for. We need to have beforehand decided how we're going to handle questions and pressures as they come our direction. And they're coming. When you are put in the hot seat, that's not the time to figure out what your position is about the issue. You understand what I'm saying? We have seen many well-respected evangelicals say the wrong thing because they had not beforehand decided their position and how they were going to articulate that position when, not if, when the question came. And the question will come. It may be from your employer, your boss, a co-worker. Seeking to create issues may simply come with a question and say, what do you think about same-sex marriage? Well, you know what you're expected to say. Huh? What will you say? And are you prepared for the consequences that will come with your strong stance on the issue? What have we said? Oh, I'm pretty sure some of those questions have already come our way. What have we said? How did we wiggle ourselves out of saying what, we're, what Scripture says we ought to say because it's what God says? Well, you know, how I answer that question publicly, specifically, publicly, may lead other younger Christians to also take the wrong stance or say the wrong thing because they've seen somebody who they felt were maybe influential in their own lives take the easy route out. What will we as a fellowship say when we're challenged by somebody, government or individuals how far are we willing to take that stand even if it costs I mean what you know listen we're going to see we're going to see the cost to individuals who stood against Manasseh as God's people we need to be very careful not to be influenced 
to tolerate evil by ungodly leaders, whether politically or in the church. It's very easy to be swayed by a man of power or wealth. It makes you feel important that someone famous or influential or well-known, whether a politician or a well-known Christian, the truth is that many Christians are just as enamored by famous people as the world is. Listen, it's very subtle, but it's very intentional the way this is being played out in, in our society. Who would have thought 30 years ago, 50 years ago, we would find ourselves where we are today, where now what is really at risk is your religious liberty, which, by the way, is constitutional, while the rights that are trumping your religious liberty are not rights even highlighted in the U.S. Constitution. And that statement is not original of my own. I'm just repeating what culture experts are saying. Listen, even if an entertainer or a sports figure or a politician or, or, or an author professes to be a Christian, it doesn't mean he or she is in line with God's word. My goodness, what people believe. And the best argument is such and such said it. Listen, we need to evaluate everything a leader says by God's word. That is the standard. Many churches and denominations have thrown that baby out the window. And we have to have the courage to stand against evil no matter who's promoting it. And a final point that shows why Manasseh's sin was especially bad was because of Manasseh's love for self, which in turn is hatred for God. You cannot, and maybe we, we, we've done a job on ourselves by trying to justify this in some way, shape, or form, but you cannot truly love self and love God. Turn for a moment to John chapter 14. Keep your place here in Second Chronicles. John chapter 14, and look at verse 15, 14, and 15. If you love me, now who's speaking? The Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
What does it say? What does it mean? Is it not clear enough? Go, for example, same author, but to a different book. Go to 1 John, chapter 5. In verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. What is John and what is the Lord saying in these two passages of Scripture? Simple. If we love him, if we love the Lord, we will keep his commandments. We are told very clearly in chapter 33, verse 8 of Second Chronicles that Manasseh did not want to observe to do all that God had commanded his people through Moses. Did he love God? If the standard is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If I choose not to obey God's word, am I loving God? Why didn't he obey? Well, simple. He loved himself. And because he did so, he hated God. All sinners... This was the case with us as well, and we don't always think of it in these terms. And sinners today don't necessarily think of it in these terms. But all sinners love themselves, and because they do so, they hate God. But it's especially true of those who practice such things as idolatry or witchcraft or sorcery, and certainly those who sacrifice their own children to false gods. And by the way, we still do that. Maybe not physically in the sense of what, you know, we're thinking of an offering on, on, uh, uh, on an altar to a false god. But by the way we refuse to raise our children, we are sacrificing them at an altar. You understand what I'm saying? Listen. People do those things to manipulate spiritual power for their own benefit. Why offer our own children to the gods? Well, so that the gods would be nice to us. That's always sort of been the mentality of the pagan religions. They were seeking the favor of their god. And if it required them sacrificing literally their own children for that, they would do it. He did it. Now, too bad about the ch child's happiness. But the only concern is self. Isn't it? When you think about what must have been going through his mind as he's offering his child as a sacrifice to a pagan god, who is he thinking of when he's doing that? 
what am I going to get out of this? It's always because of love of self. And love of self, by definition, is hatred towards God. We all have to be careful about this. It doesn't matter for Christians, but certainly for someone who's not a believer. With idols, see the attraction with idols is this. That you can make your own God according to your own liking. Isn't it? I mean, if you don't like the holy God who confronts your sinful behavior, then all you do is dismiss Him and create a God who tolerates your sin. That's what idolatry is all about. Listen, at the root of all idolatry is love of self and hatred for the one true God who alone deserves and demands our obedient love. There was an article some time back. This was published in a, by a newspaper in Arizona. It's an article uh, several years back about a woman who had admitted to drowning her two sons. The article explained how the psychologists were saying, and I quote, that an unbearable pileup of stresses may trigger latent emotional or mental illness, which in their opinion is precisely what leads to that sort of tragedy. Well, when you start thinking about that, you start realizing the danger of such philosophizing. And I'll kind of explain why I'm saying that. See, it's, it's it, instead of sinful behavior for which a person is responsible, in this case a woman, the cause becomes some mysterious or latent illness. Now I'm not arguing that there's not instances where that may be true. But there are far more instances where it's not. And it's growing in numbers because of the times that it's presented and dismissed as such. I don't know, maybe they'll find a defective DNA strand that leads to such illness someday. But also, according to these psychologists quoted in the article, the women who kill their children sometimes, and I quote, have very low self-esteem. When you think about, let's say, for example, Manasseh or others in Scripture, does it agree with what Scripture says? Is our actions that we take like that an issue of low self-esteem or is it more, at least from what I see in the case of Manasseh, is it more because, not of self-esteem, but of self-love?
See, in the case, and you know, I don't know the particulars, but in the, in the, in the case of this, this article in, in, in this newspaper in Arizona, many would argue that it wasn't an issue of self-esteem, it was an issue of her loving herself more than she did her kids. And when we dismiss it as something else, you see the problem. Manasseh wasn't killing people and sacrificing his own because of some latent emotional illness. He knew what he was doing and why he was doing it. And it all revolved around himself. I mean, seriously, when you, when you think of what he did... I mean, if there was ever a candidate for hell, you certainly would have thought that he would have been the one. I mean, it, he seems like a hopeless case if there was ever a hopeless case. But, the good news is that because God is merciful, listen, there is always hope for even the worst sinner who repents. How I feel about it doesn't factor in. I mean, you remember Jonah. There's no way in the world you, I'm going to be part of you forgiving that bunch of people. Sometimes we take that position, don't we? We... we, we we allow ourselves to start attaching our displeasure for their sin to now carry on to the person. We have to be very careful about that because at the end of the day, God is merciful to all who are willing to repent. Even to those who we don't think God ought to be that merciful to. As with Saul of Tarsus, the Lord delights to take the chief of sinners, as he called himself, and turn him into the best of saints. Listen, if for no other reason, so as to make him a trophy of his grace. And that's what we all are. Even though we've been saved and we're the recipients of God's love, it's still not all about us. what the sinner must do is to repent. So here's where we start flipping. We, we, we turn the corner with, with this particular king. Do you know that in the entire time that Manasseh was living out his wickedness, all that God was waiting for was for him to repent. There was no need for him to join some monastery there was no need for him to start working towards building his self-esteem. Look at verse 12 of chapter 33. In that verse we read that, listen, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now we're going to see a very interesting thing here. What changed about 
how he looked upon God. I mean, certainly he had been taught. Certainly he had a knowledge and of understanding of the law that had been given through Moses. Certainly he had the testimony and the witness of godly people in, in his lifetime. So what changed all of a sudden? And what's interesting here is that God shows him this mercy. So, and this is an important piece of this, if repentance is God's requirement for sinners to be reconciled to him, then it's very important that we understand what it means. Because it comes down to having the right definition for the words. If we think repentance means something else, and we do that something else, then we haven't done what we were supposed to have actually done. Does that make sense? It happens all the time. Particularly today, since we have so many religions that use the same vocabulary that we use, but have devoid all the, those words of the historical and orthodox meaning. So repentance means turning to God from sin and performing deeds not to be saved, but once you have repented, then they're accompanied by deeds that are appropriate to repentance. That's the evidence of, right? That was the, the entire argument of, of, of the book of James. You say you have faith. Show me. I have faith. See the evidence. That's exactly what repentance is all about not only is it turning from self but it is then demonstrating through deeds that serve as evidence of the actual act of turning from self and I'm using here the the Apostle Paul's words as he summarized his message to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20 he kept declaring both to the Jews and the Gentiles, listen to what he said, that they should repent, is repentance a requirement? That they should repent and turn to God. And listen to what he says, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So Paul is saying that if you're going to have a personal relationship with Almighty God and experience the blessings that come with that repentance, i.e. forgiveness of sins, then, then, then there must be that turning, and then there must be an evidence of that turn. That's what Paul has said. Maybe you're thinking right now, well, I thought that salvation is by faith in Christ. Doesn't repentance all of a sudden add works to simple faith? No. Why? Because the biblical answer is that the saving, that saving faith and repentance are flip sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. In a couple of verses before that Acts chapter 26 verse 20 in, in verse 18 where Paul related Christ's direct words to him that he was sending Paul to the Gentiles, listen to what it says, to open their eyes, this is why, why he's being sent, this is why we're being sent, this is why we go out and witness 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. They're flip sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Turning from darkness, meaning turning from sin to light or to holiness, and from Satan's domain to God is repentance. It is the means of receiving forgiveness of sin. And it's interesting, that last phrase where he says, faith in me, shows that repentance is synonymous with faith in Christ. You can't truly believe in Christ without turning from your sin. True repentance, then and now, begins as an entreaty that says, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. So through faith in the Lord Jesus, one receives forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. But don't lose sight. Look at uh, uh, chapter 33. Look, look at verses 15 and 16. And remember, we said that there needs to be repentance, according to Paul, Acts, the Acts passage we just looked at, but that with the repentance, there must be deeds appropriate to repentance. We need to see some sort of evidence that the repentance that took place is genuine. There has been a regeneration, a, a true conversion. Look at, look at the evidence that we see in the life of King Manasseh. Verse 15. He also removed the foreign gods. Listen to this. He's the one who had established this. He's the one who had led the people into all of this. Now it says in verse 15, He also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the, uh, of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings, no longer children, he sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. What happened here? He went from having a knowledge of God to knowing God. He went from having some intellectual assent about God to experientially having him now in his heart. And all of a sudden you see the evidence of that repentance, the evidence of having received the forgiveness of sins 
because there were deeds now being performed appropriate to repentance. Repentance also means forsaking self-sufficiency and with a surrendered spirit throwing ourselves on God's grace. Look at verse 12. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord, his God, and humbled himself, underline this, greatly. What used to be a love for self became a rejection of that love for self and was substituted for a love for God through his demonstrated through his humble submission to him who him whom he refused to obey not that long in the past. That Hebrew word translated humbled, when used spiritually, the emphasis is on a proud, independent person abasing himself. Manasseh's life could have been characterized before by that song, I did it my way. And he turned from his self-sufficiency and his self-will, and he essentially humbled himself and thus threw himself upon God's grace. He came to know personally what before he had only known intellectually. And in verse 33 it says that the Lord was God. He no longer just knew that here. He now knew that here. I love the way the New Living Translation uh, reads that verse. It says, Then Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. Now what happens when a person repents? Well, Repentance results in God's undeserved blessings. When Manasseh repented, I mean, my goodness, just think of all the things God could have told him when Manasseh entreats him. Are you serious? Oh, just think of all the things that he could have said. Think of all the things he could have done to Manasseh. But what's interesting is look at verse 13. This will blow you away. When he prayed to him, he was moved. Who was moved? God. He was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication. Listen, this is Manasseh praying to God and God being moved. Huh? And brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Now that's amazing grace. Did Manasseh deserve that? Certainly not. Would God have been perfectly just to say, you know what, I forgive you. 
but you're going to remain a captive in Babylon. No. I forgive you, and he takes him back and restores him to the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't consequences to our sin, even if we repent. Because look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells us, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places. So, even though he had repented, and even though he had experienced forgiveness of sin, and even though he had been restored to the kingdom, there were still lingering consequences. These people were damaged by Manasseh's sin. His son Amon, who followed his father's sin, not his repentance, was assassinated after two years on the throne. Manasseh's repentance did not restore to life Isaiah and the others Manasseh had murdered, including his sons. He had to live, listen, as a person who had experienced God's mercy and forgiveness. He had to live with those memories for the rest of his life. They weren't gone. Sin, listen to me, always leaves scars. But even so, Manasseh enjoyed God's undeserved favor after he repented. His kingdom was restored. Even better, he came to know God and to be reconciled to him. Listen, when he died, instead of incurring God's wrath which he deserved, he was welcomed into God's presence. Wow. Yes, with man... Many things are impossible, but not with God. That's how he waits to bless every sinner who repents. He's, listen to me. He's not going to undo the consequences of your sin. In fact, that's part of his grace. To remind you of the severity of sin. But he will give you undeserved blessings beyond measure. He brings you into his family, the church, where you find love like you've never known before. He arranges the circumstances of your life for good as a loving father. He cares about every one of your needs. He forgives all of your sin. He will welcome you into heaven when you die to be with him throughout all of eternity. That's God's amazing grace. If you went back to verse 1, I think that we're tipped off to God's great mercy in that very first verse of chapter 33 where the text says that he reigned for 55 years. 55 years. 
He had the longest reign in Judah than any other king, including David, including Solomon, including Hezekiah. Why would God allow this wicked king to occupy a throne for 55 years? Listen, for the same reason he has put up with all the wickedness in the world to this point in history. I remind you of Peter's words where he says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. If it were not for God's patience, Chances are I wouldn't be standing here before you speaking this morning as a redeemed, forgiven child of the living God. A poor woman from the slums of London was invited to go with a group of people for a holiday at the beach. She'd never seen the ocean before. And when she saw it, she burst into tears. The people who had invited her thought quite odd. That she would burst into tears. When such a lovely holiday had been given to her. So the question became. Why are you crying? Pointing to the ocean. Listen to the answer. This is the only thing I have ever seen that there was enough of. What's the point? When you think of God's mercy and grace, that's all we could see for which we can say that it's the only thing that we've ever seen that is enough of. God has oceans of mercy. There is enough of it for the worst of sinners. There is enough of it for you and for me. Let me close with this uh, recounting of a story. Years ago, uh, newspapers had carried carried the story of a teenager by the name of William. He was a fugitive from the police. He had run away with his girlfriend because the parents had been trying to break them up. But what William didn't know was that an ailment for which he had been seeing the doctor was diagnosed just after he had run away. The diagnosis, cancer. So here was William doing the best to elude the police lest he lose his love while they're doing the best to find him lest he lose his life. He thought they were after him to punish him. They were really after him to save him. 
That's the way it is with the Lord. He's not after the sinner in this lifetime necessarily to punish, but to save him. That's what he came for. Amen? Let's close. Father, words cannot express our immense gratitude for your mercy and your grace. I am who I am today because of you. I will one day leave this scene and go straight into your very presence because of your love for me. I am a witness to the oceans of your mercy and grace. How can I keep that to myself when I'm enveloped by a world that is lost and dying and not even realizing it? May we be faithful witnesses. May we provide others with a faithful testimony about who you are, about your love, about your grace and mercy. Thank you for your patience. For if it were not for your patience, I would have never known your love. Let us redeem the times that we may be found busy doing your work for their sake and your glory. For it is in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.